buzzes a bit. Called uh, the tale of the little mosquito. Is that still kind of? That's okay, but maybe put it closer here. Just bend it. We'll see that. How's that? I mean, How's that? Yeah. It's yeah. funny. It's good. How's that? Not bad. It's okay. Thank you. Um, this is an old story uh, collected by a Greenlander named Nutt uh who cut down a very long uh, exploration way in the old days uh, from Greenland all the way over uh, through northern Canada to Alaska. Uh, it's, it's a longer story about him, but this story was collected west of King William Island, uh, west of Baffin Island. Um, so I'm sure you would know that area living in Canada. Maybe. <laughs> There was once a tiny mosquito that flew out into the world. It was so small that it thought people didn't notice it. But when it was hungry, it landed on the hand of a boy. And while it rested, it heard someone say, Ugh, that nasty mosquito, crush it fast. But then the mosquito could suddenly speak so that the boy could hear it. Spare my life, spare my life. I have a little grandson who will cry if I do not come home. Just think, so small, and yet a grandfather. (laughs) (coughs) I really um, feel that... um, if we looked at mosquitoes like grandfathers and grandmothers, it would be harder to swat them. And that, that kind of way in which we lack um, this relational way of seeing the world, uh, if we look at where we feel bereft of connection or interconnection, it's this lack of awareness that that's the truth It's not like it's something we fabricate, but it's the truth um, of relationship. So, in this meditation practice, what's so important is we're developing a relationship to experience with wisdom and compassion. So it's not that we're saying that any particular experience is more important than another experience, but it's always the relationship we're having to the experience that matters. Uh, And so what we're saying is that there's an awareness that we're cultivating that is not chained to experience. 
and when we're picking and choosing one experience as better or more important or worse than another experience, that's the chain. Uh, so here we're uh, cultivating a awareness infused with wisdom, for example, or an awareness infused with compassion that then can relate to anything equally. So I like to bring in all kinds of ways we can um, contemplate relationship itself at the beginning of a retreat because it's so important. Again, when Jesse talks so beautifully about the precepts, it's that sense of, yes, how easy it is to want to swan and feel because we have no relationship. When I was a very little girl, um, once in a while, I was brought to my grandmother's house, and she was from Newfoundland. And uh, she was the only real functioning person (laughs) anywhere in the family. And so when I went there, the first thing I would do is run into the closet and shut the door and just breathe, because... And there was so much smoke in my house and I was allergic to smoke but I didn't know it but I would just run in there, shut the door and just, I would just breathe and I was so happy you know, just delighted and I, I couldn't have told you why uh, and then my grandmother would get up really early, like 3 or 4 in the morning to cook and that was, you know, coming again from such extreme non-function. That was so amazing to me. And I would get up early and I would listen to her in the kitchen. And uh, it was so different than how I was raised. Uh, but I would so appreciate it. And I didn't understand. My grandmother called everything Johnny. <laughs> so like a spoon she'd pick it up she'd call it Johnny the stove was Johnny the pot roast was Johnny like the, like the floor was Johnny she talked to everything and like at first I think whoa <laughs> this is so weird um, and uh, but I would just delight in listening to her like relating to her uh, and recently, I went for a walk, and I was feeling kind of disconnected. And I, this was a home in Hawaii. But I looked at the sky, and I was like, oh, hi, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, here, went, here was my grandmother, like that teaching. Like, but it, for me, it needed to expand to this tree, for example, that we sit with. I mean, this tree is incredible. This must be the most beautiful hall in the world. To get to sit here and look at this tree sometimes, and the river, and, and feel that inspiration. Um, and do we have that sense of a relationship? And if we don't, we kind of roam this planet kind of lost in the sea of disconnection and alienation and numbness and, um, there's there's a way in which just that simplicity if you go out and do walking meditation I'm not saying you have to call everything Johnny um, you might find it interesting it, it could be Matilda it doesn't have to be that word but that you're related is what And, you know, sometimes I think we might go out to do walking meditation and and keep picking different places to walk. But I would suggest perhaps picking one place for the retreat. And you'll get to know the grass where you walk and the trees where you walk and the squirrels where you walk, and they'll get to know you. It's, it's like we're, we're like, again, we're just kind of oblivious to this. But you'll know that all the ants there, all the squirrels there, all the beings there, the blue jays, who they all notice you.
we have to be willing to go through the boredom to do that. It's like when you hit a place of boredom, you might want to pick another place to walk or another place to walk. But it's like, try going through it and see what happens. And what I'm suggesting is that it's like um, we have this idea that if we change the channel, if we get the remote out, that it's going to make it better somehow. And actually, you know, I'm not saying just never shift the uh, scenery. But if you look at this instruction that we're doing, like come back to the breath, how boring can that get, right? I mean, we're asking you to develop a relationship with the thing that we're the most dependent on. We are completely dependent on air. We can't go long without it. We could go longer without water, much longer without food, but without air, forget it. And yet, we are the least interested in it. And how interesting we could see that is incredibly interesting. Possibly. Um, and in this tradition, the idea of coming back to the breath, but certainly you can see it's fairly universal, um, that uh, we're cultivating something to come back to over a lifetime that is meant to be somewhat neutral, not intense, not overstimulating. That's like, again, that's an understatement too. You know, it's just like, it's it's to learn that if you stay with one thing again and again and again, that you're going to learn more and more and more and more. Um, But we offer several different anchors, but we're not saying to just have the attention stay with the breath for two seconds and then go to the foot for a few seconds and then sound for a few seconds. That's not the idea of an anchor. An anchor is meant to be more like um, the ship has gone out to sea and it's gotten too um, windy or too stormy and where where can it find refuge? Where can it where can it drop anchor? Well, it goes into a safe little harbor and it drops anchor. And the idea of the anchor is really, you know, physical. It's not just mental. It's not just mindfulness of whatever. It's really that sense of over a lifetime finding something that no matter how <laughs> much things are intense or boring or up or down, that and how much we get lost in thinking that we have something to come back to when we're sitting. And we're wa- when we're walking, that connection with the, the foot, with the ground, that stepping, that being with the movement of the legs, it's, it's like the, the um, encouragement is to understand that this isn't just something we do for half a day, but really that we walk. A lot. We breathe a lot. And that this is something that we can access over time if you're patient. And I, I think it's very important to feel that permission, especially if you're new, um, to see that whenever we bring our attention to something and we're trying to stay with it for a while, we try to control it. That's part of what you're meant to see. You know, check it out if you live with somebody for one year, two years, three years, four years, you really know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> like, it's like, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the breath or a sound or an emotion or a person. We do it with everything. We, we, we make this attempt to connect. We want to be connected. And then we try to be connected and we try to sustain it and then the person doesn't bring the compost out at the right time, right? Like, it's like, what happened? We can't sustain the connection. 
So this is this is not just about that we can't sustain the attention with the breath at quarter to twelve. This this is this is deep in terms of our understanding of our attention itself and what we're doing here and why it is so hard to sustain intimacy. So I like to think of the word intimacy as what um, an aspect of concentration, basically. The first part of the moment of concentration is that ability to take the flashlight, which is the attention, and connect it with something. Whether it's a step or a sound or the movement of the breath, it's that ability to connect. That's the first part. The second part is being able to sustain it through its life. So if the, if the breath takes birth, you try to sustain the attention through the life of the breath till its end. And we might think, well, <laughs> what does that have to do with anything? Well, that practice of doing it with the movement of the breath or the movement of our leg or the sound of a blue jay or the sound of that music, that's going to be harder, huh? We think it should be happening because we're on retreat. <laughs> if we were ready for a party, it would be great. So it's all very relative, right? But it's that, that ability to sustain that we might be disliking it. And how do you be mindful of that? You, to sustain the beginning, middle, end of the disliking. Not easy. Much easier to try it with the breath, right? Or that. So what we're saying is that we're practicing being with the beginning, middle, end of happiness. We don't like it when happiness disappears. We like it when anger disappears. Certainly, if it's coming at us. You know, I mean, it's just all very interesting to start looking at again our relationship with everything. I mean, I, I remember when I was younger, you know, I wasn't that interested in seagulls or blue jays because they were so common. And if an eagle went by, I'd go nuts. It would just be like, an eagle is better because it's not ordinary. And this practice really cured me of that. <laughs> it did. It's because I kept, I, it was horrible when I started noticing just like with my moment-to-moment experience, I was only interested in this peak stuff. And then I was not accepting 98% of my experience. And it's horrific if you're new to practice and you start seeing that that's how it actually is. <coughs> and actually the patience it takes to wear that down, that attitude. And then again, the more we're not valuing so many of the ordinary moments, um, we're bereft of meaning, we're bereft of connection, and then we can't sustain the intimacy. Um, So I'm using the word intimacy in terms of sustaining the attention with the breath. And you notice how much we want to take a commercial. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's like if we're fantasizing, it's really important to not demonize it, but to understand it. To be interested in it, not as getting lost in it, but to be interested in it as a uh, way we take commercials. There's a um, wonderful old hermit poet, um, Saigyo, from Japan, from the 1100s. And and if you look at his poems, if they're translated um, not just in English, but you get the Japanese, and you get the English words, not the Japanese um, symbols, there's a word that he uses almost every um, poem which is the word tomo. And uh, I looked it up once, and it means friend. 
Uh, and if you if you look at his poems deeply, you'll see that in one poem, Tomo is for grass. The grass is his friend. Tomo is a cloud. Tomo is a cricket. Um, whatever. Tomo is this. Tomo is that. But what I was um, very, very moved by, when I, I started spending more time with his poems, was his relationship to difficult emotion. So Tomo, he would have that with loneliness. That loneliness had really become his friend. And that's hard. Yeah? What do we do to avoid that feeling? And yet he had completely befriended it. And this this is my favorite poem by him. Um, and I think it's so important for spiritual um, people A world without the scattering of blossoms, without the clouding over the moon, would deprive me of my melancholy. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that is really free. A world without the scattering of blossoms would deprive me of my melancholy. Ah, how many of us relate to melancholy like that? We think something's wrong. (laughs) And especially when you get older, you gotta deal with it. It's gonna come. (laughs) And we wanna just crush it. (laughs) Stamp it out. Or, well... I guess maybe I'll experience melancholy once this retreat, and then I'll be fully liberated, right? You know, I'll, I'll try it, and it'll be my friend, but then, you know, that's it. It shouldn't come back. It definitely shouldn't come back, right? We, we experienced it. We, uh, we're, we're very, um, again, we're very arrogant with our difficult emotions, thinking they should never come back even though they're trying to protect us. (laughs) I had a a professor um, I started with him with botany. It's a longer story. Um, He was a Quaker and uh, very much in love with nature but also very scientifically trained. Um, When I first um, was taking a course with him, he was describing one of his teacher's teachers, uh, and his name was Louis Agassi, uh, who had been European but came to America to teach at Harvard. And in their biology class, uh, for a whole month, You'd walk in for your first day of class in biology, and there was a bucket of fish. And everyone would have to take a fish and put it on their desk and spend the class observing the fish and drawing it day after day. And it wasn't like um, it was a trout one day and a perch the next. It was the same fish. And, you know, there was no warning that day eight was going to be the same class or day nine. It just went on for a month. And a lot of people dropped out of the class. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing as sort of the first day of retreat. It's like, what am I doing here? You know, you see the sailboat, and it's like, I could be on a sailboat today. <laughs> you know, it's just, um, it's hard. And, you know, it's just that sense of, oh... This professor was saying, you know, maybe you could try really observing this. And the next day, you know, you didn't really observe it very closely. Try it again, and try it again, and try it again, and try to have that patience with all the stuff that you're going to come around this one thing, right? All our, 
all our unworthiness, all our arrogance, all our boredom, everything's going to come out in relationship to this one thing because we didn't get to change the channel. And I'm not saying again that you don't have a lot of kindness and learn how to back up. And so you'll hear in our instruction that actually we're saying for some people hearing might be a better anchor. For some people sitting, touching the body hands, I was describing at 2.30 today, might be a, a, um, a better anchor or the breath or is the falling movement disappears, adding in the hands if you can't stay in that place where it's getting so refined. You start learning um, that with any anchor, it's it's going to bring up stuff, but you learn which one is easier for you. And that's what you come back to when your attention is lost in thought. That's what you come back to when your attention is lost in thought. It's an anchor. Um, and what you, what you also hopefully are hearing, that when something is predominant, if your attention is called somewhere, it's choiceful. Somebody coughs, your attention's there. This is not a choice you made. It's not like you sat there and you thought, okay, maybe I should be with that sound. It's not like that. It's there, and then you're not meant to be yanking back to the anchor. Now, if you're with hearing, the breath could become predominant. And you go to it and come back to hearing. You see, it doesn't... What matters is you start to just start to learn how to come back to one thing. And there's many more things to say about that. Because sometimes with this one thing, say it is the breath, you're learning how to um, deepen your uh, stillness, the concentration with it. But sometimes you're mindful with it. And it doesn't mean that you have to get overly vigilant or worried about any of it. But it it doesn't... Um, learning how to be uh, connected, sustain the attention, and then sometimes to be mindful is the root with the anchor. And then that can teach us how to be mindful of um, enjoyment. It's the same process. Or mindful of seeing, or mindful of uh, your foot touching the ground. Same process. And I learned in my early years of practice, for me, um, sound was where I had to begin. When I learned how to actually do what I'm explaining, then I was able to, to be with the breath sometimes. Because I, I couldn't do it directly. I'm not saying that's how you should do it. It's what happened for me. Um, but I also trusted that in myself. And for some people, again, it might be sitting, touching. Um, and please, when there are question periods or interviews, please ask about this because it's important to understand um, how that might be working for you. So um, Suzuki Roshi in the book Beginner's Mind described mindfulness as soft readiness. And this means that the awareness is infused with soft readiness. Meaning that there are many different ways to describe what mindfulness is. And, and Jesse and I will be doing that every day many times is giving a different angle on what mindfulness is. Uh, so this angle is the sense that we might say that mindfulness is an awareness that's infused with wisdom, but then there are many ways to try to explain what that is. So it, sometimes it's called present time awareness, um, and <laughs> it's meant to be present time awareness with wisdom with understanding. Um, this doesn't mean 
that any kind of attention that we can get isn't like awareness. It's helpful, right? Like it's like present time awareness is very different than being lost in thinking. So just being able to come back and be awake is huge. And if there's this quality of soft readiness, it means that we're understanding that anything can happen. For example, the truth is that each moment is changing. Each moment is new. Nothing stays the same, right? We can theoretically grasp that. Um, And so mindfulness is this ability to stay connected to that truth to actually understand that mindfulness... When I was... I remember a retreat with Sayadaw Pandita when he was trying to, you know, get this across, that mindfulness is being ready for anything to happen. You know, we were never taught that. And I was like, wow! You know, that's like... And he kept saying, this is to help get you strong. I want you to get strong. You know, and the strength is real. that realization that the understanding, the realization, however we might say it, that that readiness, moment by moment, that's ready for anything to happen, is so that when the music starts, we're not, like, crushed and we can't think we're going to bear it. Versus, oh... And if it's unpleasant, it's like, oh, unpleasant, aversion to it, oh, aversion to it, no problem, right? It's a, it's like because we're, we, we aren't like um, going. I didn't come here to listen to that. Right? <laughs> Apparently, we did. <laughs> it's so interesting. <laughs> So there's that sense again that the readiness for anything to happen versus unconscious or conscious, this underpinning of expectation and agenda, and that kills connection. Whether we're with a person or with a breath or with our emotions, you see, it, it's the same thing. If we're lost or identified with expectation, we're not going to be there with that person. So this idea of a kind of freshness, life is fresh always, moment by moment, it's fresh, but we get dull because we keep wanting to, again, it's that wanting to control versus be with it how it is. And soft readiness um, has a a lot of um, wisdom in it as well because we see that when the mind is hard it's inflexible you know when we're really believing we're right you tend to get a a glimpse of how hard the mind can get and uh, how out of touch so inflexible versus flexible and of course if each moment is changing then of course we need to have that flexibility versus that hardness. And this always reminds me of a a public television show I saw some years ago uh, where this artist, uh, she decided that she was going to make her own tightrope and then um, learn to walk on it. Uh, So she went to some shipyards and learned how to make rope and she videoed this, and uh, that she had this task of learning to walk on the tightrope, and she and she filmed herself doing this. And um, what she learned is that to be able to keep balance on a tightrope, you always have to be willing to be out of balance. Isn't that awesome? You know that that if she if she tried to be rigid and just make herself seem to be keeping balance, she'd fall off. But if she could just be willing to be moving and uh, be with that change, she would stay upright and, and stay continuous. And this is mindfulness. 
and you'll see it. It's like when you finally are like, oh, finally are with the movement of the breath. Again, the idea is not that you won't get called, or you might notice that three thoughts happened by the time you got to the end of the rising. That's the idea. It's not to make them stop. It's more not to be bothered by them. You might notice uh, as you get quieter, as you're trying to be in the rising movement, that there's two sounds, <laughs> three thoughts, a couple body sensations, and you're at the end of the rising movement, and it would be a miracle that you got there without spacing out, right? Well, that's seeing how much is happening. That's starting to get, like, why this is so hard. So it's not like you're not supposed to notice all that. That's why we're saying if your attention gets lost in a thought, no problem. It's going to many, 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 many times. Uh, But the idea is to um, have this flexibility where you, instead of getting lost in it for five minutes, you start noticing it and choosing to come back and choosing to come back and choosing to come back. That's the freedom. That's the flexibility. And as we're saying, we're we're really encouraging an attention that's present, um, but not pouncing. And that's hard. You know, we might notice a cough and we'll try to be there with it and it's like we're trying to pounce on it. Or I remember a lot of my early practice, if I noticed a thought, (laughs) um, the way I would notice that would be like somebody was pitching a a softball with me and, you know, I would be just ready for the bat. (laughs) I would just wham it. And another thought, wham, wham. Why? I had no space. That's what it felt like I had to do. I was drowning. Uh, And I I must say, (laughs) uh, having the attention start to uh, come down here to be anchored. Really, how far from your thoughts is that? Pretty far. You start getting your center of gravity here rather than up here. It's, It's a very different world. You start walking in there with the bottom of your feet pretty far. You start getting more space. Yet, you know, it's not that you're not going to get sucked into them, but there's more space. And with our body, we've been talking about the word breath versus letting the attention. Um, observe the sensations. So say uh, my attention gets drawn to uh, some tingling in my cheek. There might be the word cheek, there might be um, the awareness starts to explore. And we might notice warmth. Now I know that's a word, but that word warmth or tingling or softness is very different than the word cheek for us experientially because it starts to break down our belief in that this is my body and my cheek and that there's no um, receiving of the direct experience. So what we're saying is that we're not trying to get rid of the conceptual world. We're not trying to reject the word breath or cheek or tree or sky or anything, but we're asking all of us to stop and realize that that's only 1% or less than 1% of what's happening. And that this ability to start observing, and sometimes the attention can go right inside and observe from the inside or observe from the outside, that ability to start to understand that our body is made up of earth, air, fire, and water. It's not solid. So the words are having an impact on us that we're believing that we're we're separate and solid. Even though we know 
intellectually that we, we that's not possibly true that the air where is it coming from and again like the food when it comes in our nose does the air then become me here and then when it comes out it's, it's something else it's like we, we're not investigating the, the, our being the quality even of our body or being so sometimes we have energy to actually look and Again, what's being said is that there are pleasant and unpleasant aspects of these elements. So the pleasant aspect of earth is soft. You lay down in bed at night. It's soft. Why do we go, oh, it's like, oh, it's soft. It's pleasant. Okay, why do we sit for 45 minutes? You're going to get in touch with hardness. That's earth. But we like it. We stand up. We want it to be hard, right? We don't like earthquakes. You know, but really, literally, it's like this. We we are meant to start exploring reality. And even the words soft and hard, they're not going to remotely be what it is. That's just a word as well. But that willingness to go into the wordless, to the, go into the unknown and explore um, that level where it's more like particles, waves. It's, it's um, again, that the exploration is vast. The root in is, in terms of physicality, is with this warm temperature, warm, cool, burning, cold. Well, we're getting our taste of that range of how hot is too hot, right? Or how cold is too cold. Again, it's like our body is made out of fire element, temperature. And are we interested? Air element, the very light vibration to tight, pulling, throbbing, light pressure, movement is air, any kind of movement. Water flowing. It's the opposite of flowing. Stuck. Stuck is okay. So the pleasant and unpleasant aspects of our body and learning how to um, explore them on deeper and deeper levels. It's the mindfulness that that makes it possible to explore. The investigation, the interest. And you really don't have to push it. If you're not interested, just go to the anchor and use it for uh, concentration. Concentration is a rest. It's meant to be a rest. It's meant to be solitude. It's meant to be a time where you can walk and sit with the movement of the breath, with um, you can learn to do that with sound or the movement of the legs. You're here very lightly, um, just very lightly, and it's it's meant to be a kind of rest to give us the courage to investigate again, explore. So the practice, if if you don't have any attachment to whether you're more in a rest mode, but here or more an exploration mode. If you, if you trust that you're, um, the more you understand it, that the practice will do itself. It was like 
the most holy word was Papamana. And later I asked him what it, he meant by that, what he meant when he used that word. And he said, um, carefulness. And it was another way he was trying to get across how to be mindful, was just this carefulness, a carefulness not just with one thing, but it's carefulness with how I take the paper up here and move it. He used to look at one point, this was many retreats after some retreats. No, it wasn't. It was the end of my first retreat with him. He started looking at my um, penmanship. And he started looking at how I, like, if I wrote any letter, I'm mindful. And I, <laughs> I wanted to just say, <laughs> Give me a break. I don't I don't wanna I don't want you to look at my ends and tell me if I wrote them with Apamada or not. I wasn't ready for it, you know. But that's the standard he was holding me to. And it was hard. I have to say, I would get furious at like that level of like being held to that kind of a standard. Um, and then I would get incredibly ambitious. It was horrible. Just that horrible, like, hell to, like, be stretching way beyond what I had ever imagined was possible. And then getting super angry at him because it was too much. And then deciding that, yeah, I'm going to do it. Like, way beyond any hope that I could. Just, just watching again that range of how I was making it end, you know, really. That's the same of how we're careful with the breath, but it, it has that sense again of what are we able to do? And and to see if we can be okay with that and to keep stretching where we can and then learning how to use the concentration as a kind of rest rather than having to fantasize to cope. And that's why we teach them loving kindness practice at four o'clock because I learned when I would get caught in fantasy a lot of the time I was just needing some kindness. It might not be why everybody is. We all have different, you know, it's it's not good to have a formula. That's also what I can say sometimes we might be because we're not able to be with the boredom. There's all kinds of reasons. But it's like to be able to instead of going whap you know, like the baseball, that fantasy, wow. It's like, hmm, wonder, wonder what this is about. Yeah? No problem if we see it clearly. When we have this intention to understand rather than to judge, the intention to understand with Upamanda. ago we had a um, retreat on the Big Island in tents um, for young adults. We've done some adult retreats for some years, but we decided to do a young adult retreat. And someone had put some posters up. This is on the north um, of the Big Island, the north part of the Big Island, and rural. Um, Not that many people would be interested in having their teens going to a mindfulness retreat there. But somebody put up some posters, and a lot of teens came from the mainland. Uh, but this um, grandmother in a very, very rural town had seen this poster, and her granddaughter, her daughter was having big time trouble, so her granddaughter was living with her and her grandson. And her granddaughter was 16, and she was running away all the time. So she decided to send um, the granddaughter to the retreat, but she was worried that she would run away. And so she sent the grandson, who was 13, to make sure that the granddaughter wouldn't run away. This was, can you imagine that being your motivation? (laughs) We have lots of different motivations, but that was always a winner. This was a real winner. 
And so you know, at 13, boy, it's really hard to listen to adults, right? I mean, you know, so this poor kid, I feel so bad for him. He, we'd all be in the tent and give the instruction, and he'd be sitting there looking at me like this. He's really interested in mindfulness. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I have such faith in this. You have no idea. I mean, I don't. It doesn't worry me too much. But I really wondered for him particularly, given the odds. Just his life was so hard, and the odds of this sinking in were pretty low. But we're going along, going along, and it's the last full day of the retreat, and we had so much rain. I mean, that night it was just buckets and buckets and buckets of rain. It never, it never stopped. And he, he had such a crappy tent. Um, so after breakfast, uh, everybody was going to the 845 sit for the sitting and instructions. And I noticed that he was over by his tent, which was pretty far away from everybody. So I went over, and everything was dripped. The tent was down. All his clothes were wet. And lots just like, uh, he looked miserable. And so I said, um, you know, there's a sitting going on right now. Do you think... I think you might want to come and uh, I think he just looked I think he was so amazed that I even bothered like to go over there right like he looked at me like are you from Mars or something but he waited and uh, he said "Um, well Michelle I'm a little bit frustrated (laughs) but I'm noting frustration Maybe I'll come. <laughs> and I thought, if this kid can do this, anybody can. I mean, really, like when you think about, again, like he so didn't want to be there, and he so didn't want to hear what was the instruction, and yet he said it. And how many of us could have done that? Like, oh, I'm frustrated, but I'm noting it. It's okay, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. It gives us the chance to pause and to have choice and not to be oppressed by our experience. That's like, that's so awesome that we have this gift of being able to learn this. And of course, the first few days of retreat, it's not going to be like clear sailing to the moon. It's like, you know, you go up and down and up and down, and you learn not to take the experience personally. We're learning that um, we don't have to make an interpretation about ourselves in relationship to what's happening. Because usually, if, if things are going good, we think, then I am good. And if things are going bad, then we think, I am bad. It might not be so um, uncensored. It might be a little bit more sophisticated than that. But generally, that's what it is. It's like, and then that person's doing good. They don't look like they're having a hard time at all. You know, I'm doing that, or they're doing that. They look like they're really not being mindful. You know, I'm being good. It's just that endless identification with experience, meaning we're interpreting something about ourselves in relationship to sleepiness, restlessness, happiness, sadness. It's just that's what's making us unhappy. That's the suffering. This is where the Buddha taught. That's the unnecessary suffering. It's the unnecessary addition on to experience, which is this, this flowing change of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, impermanent. So the Buddha taught that if we're disconnected from our understanding of impermanence, that's when we that's when we suffer. When we're connected to impermanence, 
that's not a phrase. So you can see that the wisdom is a deep protection. That's when we're safe, when we're connected to the truth. And when we're disconnected from the truth, we're not safe. quotation has um, the author Louisa May Alcott in it, and I just wanted to remind us all, she was the author of Little Woman, she wrote, um, she wrote that, um, yeah, she wrote that book probably mid-1800s. So this is a quote from the book about Thoreau's um, journal of wildflowers. Thoreau's love of flowers was noticed by those around him. Louisa May Alcott, a child when Thoreau was living at Walden Pond from 1845 to 1847. She wrote about that time period in her life later. On certain days, Thoreau made the long pilgrimages to find the sweet Rodora in the wood, welcoming the lonely flower like a long absent friend. And I think of a retreat just like this, that it's a pilgrimage where we're welcoming all these, um, you know, really lonely parts of ourselves that we've been disconnected from. Like we all these lonely, long-absent friends, whether they're pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Um, and what, what a wonderful, again, what a, a beautiful thing to be able to do together is to be on this privilege together. So let's sit for walking and then um, we're going to do the metta chant, the loving kindness chant at 9 o'clock and that sitting will be quite short, won't be too long, so please come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.